If I were to ask you if you wanted a drink, what would you request? Would it be a stout coffee? Uh, would it be a sugary drink? Would it be an alcoholic beverage, right? If you had to choose a drink, what would you choose and why? You see, whatever you would choose, there's a reason, right? Uh, some people, you know, they drink coffee for a boost of energy, and some weirdos like the taste of burnt beans. Uh, some people like myself, some people like myself, like the taste of sugary drinks just because I like sugar, you know? Uh, and as one should, the 23 flavors of Dr. Pepper, all right? That's something somebody, all people, should like, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you would choose an alcoholic beverage and uh, there'd be a reason, right? Some people drink alcohol because it's a social thing. Their buddies are doing it, so they go and do it. Uh, some people, though, this seems to be one of the main reasons, some people drink alcohol because it's a way to self-medicate, right? Some people use alcohol as a way to avoid their feelings or their issues. And you see, no matter what drink you choose, whether it be water, whether it be a sugary drink, whether it be coffee, whether it be alcohol, there's a reason, right? And as with all drinks, well, it only fulfills a temporary desire and or need, right? It is true. We do need to drink our liquids. We need to have enough water. We have needs in life, and we have to fulfill those needs every day. But the thing is, no matter how many times we go throughout the day fulfilling those needs, no matter how many times we drink water, we will constantly have to replenish ourselves with water. We can't just stop, right? It's a constant need, and it only fulfills a temporary need. That being said, in John chapter 4, Jesus, he meets with a Samaritan woman, and he's trying to show her that there is something far more important than her physical needs or desires. She has a need that has eternal ramifications and a need that can only be satisfied with the right kind of drink. So turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 15, but before we read that, we've got to remember what we've already covered. Right? In Jesus, there is true life. Right? Jesus offers us so much more than what our natural eyes can see, and this new life is obtained by being born again, meaning to be born of the Spirit. And what do we notice about those who are born of the Spirit? Well, they've accepted Christ. They've received Christ's testimony. And we notice that for one to receive Christ, well, they don't actually receive them if they're not born again. If you have not been born again, you clearly have not received Christ's testimony. Those two things are tied together and cannot be separated. Those who receive Christ are born again. And then at the end of John chapter 3, we're presented two options. There are those who believe, and as the text says, those who do not obey. So John chapter 3, verse 36 John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those who believe, which entails being born again, so true belief is tied with being born again, which means to be born of the Spirit. Those who believe have eternal life. That word therefore has is present tense. Right? This eternal life is not some distant future promise that is only attainable in the future. No, this is a promise you can attain now. Why? Because of Jesus. You can be born again because of what he has done. And remember in that verse there, verse 36, we notice how belief is tied to obedience. Those who 
believe have eternal life. Those who do not obey the Son shall not see life. So belief is tied to obedience. Those who see Christ for who he is can't help but to act. They can't help but to obey. We're going to see that in John chapter 4, but it takes the Samaritan woman a little bit before she gets there. So John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 say this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, a few things here. Word of Jesus is obviously spreading, and the religious elite, they do not like it, all right? They did not like John the Baptist, and they most certainly do not like Jesus. And remember, Jesus did not actually baptize people himself. His disciples did for him. Uh, So he's not baptizing, and it's probably to avoid people comparing their baptisms, thinking their baptism is better than another person's. And so he has all these people coming to him. They're being baptized, and there's attention being drawn to Jesus. And in light of that attention, the Pharisees have him on their radar. All right? And so Jesus, he leaves Judea. Now, do I think he leaves because he's afraid of the Pharisees? No, absolutely not. Look at, look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So no, Jesus is not afraid of the Pharisees. All right? Jesus has authority over his life. He has complete control. Every movement of Jesus in Scripture that we see is very purposeful. I truly believe every single thing that Jesus did was exactly how it was meant to be. Jesus was purposeful. He has full control over what happens to him. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Romans cannot lay a finger on him unless he allows. Right? And as we saw last week, Jesus is above all. Right? Every single thing and every single person is in his hand. He's above all. He has sovereignty. So no, they cannot lay a finger on him unless he allows. And I love hymns that we just sang, like 10,000 angels that highlight his sovereignty. Why? Because they're true. Jesus has his life in his own hands, and he chose to lay it down, to suffer, and to die. He's not afraid of the Pharisees. Verse 4, John chapter 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, that verse there, a lot of Jews probably would have read that as, and he had to pass through Samaria, right? As if it was the most terrible thing somebody could do. You know, maybe kind of like how we think of Dallas, right? When we're driving through Dallas, nobody says, oh, I just... I love driving through tens lanes of traffic bumper to bumper. Just, it's such a great thing. No, nobody says that, right? It's, it's more like, oh, and I had to pass through Dallas. You know, we, we don't really want to do that. We would much rather avoid Dallas if we can. Now, they wanted to avoid Samaria for a different reason. I can't imagine the traffic was too bad back then. They wanted to avoid Samaria because of the people there. You see, the Jews, I'm sure you've heard this, they hated the Samaritans. Why? Well, probably the main reason was because the Samaritans are Jews who mixed with Assyrians. All right, now, at first, some people have taken this and some people have taken it in the wrong direction. They think it was a racial issue. It wasn't a racial issue. The Jews and the Assyrians, they're 
the same race, different culture. Right? It wasn't really a racial issue, it was a cultural issue. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, to kind of show us this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me. There's the key verse right there. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn down their carved images with fire. That's why God did not want them to mix with other people because it was a cultural thing, right? Different races, same ethnicity, or sorry, same, same races, different ethnicity, right? Different culture. And the issue was that Israel, if they were to intermarry, they would be led astray to idols. And time and time again, throughout their history, that scene, they, they, they mix with the other people and they're pulled to pagan culture. They're pulled to pagan worship of idols and false gods, and they became syncretistic. And so the Samaritans, well, they, they mixed with the Assyrians, and the Jews did not like it one bit. They viewed them as less than. Now, to be sure, the Jews, obviously, there, there's some prejudice there that was not fair. Uh, for instance, the, the Samaritans had their own temple. They had their temple on Mount Gerizim, and Obviously, they had to have their own temple since the Jews would not converse with them. Uh, it goes without saying. Uh, not to mention the, the Samaritans, they viewed the, the first five books as authoritative, nothing else, right? So the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's what they had as authoritative. While the Jews had the Torah, uh, the major minor prophets, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, you know, they, they had all of that as authoritative. So they disagreed on a, on a number of things, where to worship and what books are authoritative and they uh, we're different as far as ethnicity goes. So, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and in all honesty, it was more one-sided. The Jews hated the Samaritans more than the Samaritans really had anything against the Jews. That being said, continue on to verses 5 and 6 in John chapter 5. Going through Samaria was not a small thing for a Jew back then. Verses 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus, if you remember, he was in Jerusalem for the Passover at the end of chapter 2. Now let's visualize this a little bit so you can kind of get the idea, if you can see that. Oh, that's, I guess it's probably not the best picture. But, so Jesus, he's in Jerusalem. He's going up to Samaria around Sakar to Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well, this is actually the only reference we have to Jacob's well in Scripture. The only reference. However, back in Genesis 33, you'll see that Jacob, he bought land from Shechem, and Shechem is in the same vicinity as Sakar. Uh, presumably, he built a well there, right? After all, that's a very normal thing, even today, to do when you buy land to build a well. 
And then in Genesis 48, verse 22, I know a lot of technical stuff, pretty boring, but in Genesis 48, you see that Jacob gives Joseph land as inheritance. So presumably on that land, that's the well. And so we see Jesus, he was down in Judea, he goes up to Samaria, to Zachar, where Jacob's well is, and the text says he wearied. Right? Literally, he, the text is saying he was spent. It's the same word used to describe somebody who's done a lot of labor and is just spent, worn out from a lot of work, which makes sense for Jesus. Consider what he all just did here in the text leading up to chapter 4. He had to deal with his thick-headed disciples. Lord knows we all are, right? He has to deal with all of us. He changed water into wine, which I don't know what kind of energy that takes, but I presume it takes some kind of energy. He fashioned a whip in order to whip people out of the temple. That most certainly took some energy. And he had a probably long and frustrating conversation with a Pharisee who just did not get it. And alas, the Pharisees hear about him and they probably already want to kill him. So Jesus, he's got a lot going on in this short span of time. So he is spent. Verses 7 and 8 say in chapter 4, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritan. And in that phrase there, you can kind of see it was one-sided. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus here, he does what would have been unthinkable. He asked for a drink. And what makes this even more unthinkable at the time was that Jesus, he doesn't have anything to draw water with. We're going to see that in verse 11. And so what Jesus is asking is he's asking for a drink from the same vessel that she is using to draw water and probably the same vessel she will drink from. To them, that was a big no-no, right? To them, they probably would have thought Jesus would have become unclean if he did that. But Jesus asked her for a drink of water, and it seems that Jesus is using this as an opportunity to strike up a conversation. And some people think that's all he's doing here. Some people think that he just asked this because he wants to strike up a conversation, but why not both? After all, Jesus is spent, so he probably actually does need water, but he uses this as an opportunity to strike up a conversation. Now, this is not the the main point of this passage I want to make here, but we can learn something from Jesus, right? What seems mundane, you know, the, the typical conversations we might have when some, with someone, we can use that as an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, to talk to them about what really matters, which is spiritual life in Jesus. You see, not every conversation has to begin with Jesus, but we can certainly bring it around. Jesus did not begin every conversation with himself. He starts with the mundane and brings it around to what really matters. Continue on to verses 9 and 10. The Samaritan woman said to him, sorry, that's, wait, no, not 9 and 10. Continue on in verses 11 and following. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it as did his sons and his livestock. See what the woman's doing there? Our father Jacob, he gave us this well. 
Or Jesus wants to see her of something of much more importance, but she's still focused on the physical. She, she, she's focused on the fact that they have this water and they've had it for generations. She's focused on their external differences. She's focused on their ethnicity. She's focused on their cultural differences. She doesn't see what really matters. And maybe that's what we kind of do nowadays, right? Think about this. She looks at the well they've had for generations. Literally, they've had this well for well over 1,500 years. Maybe we do that, right? We've had our well-paying job for a long time. Surely we're good. Oh, we have a nice retirement saved up. I'm, I'm good, Jesus. I got life figured out. I don't need nothing. So that's kind of how she thinks about this well. We've had this water. What better water could there be? What do you mean living water? We get so comfortable in the life we've had for generations that we do not see what Jesus offers us. Continue on in verses 13 and following. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, that I or drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yeah, you might have your well. You might have your well-paying job. You might have your retirement saved up. But it doesn't last. I'm sure a lot of you have thought about this retirement. Uh, what, are, what are we going to do after I officially retire? I'm sure Eddie's thought about this. But no matter how much you have saved up, no matter what stuff you have, it doesn't last. No matter how well your car wash is going, you know, it doesn't last. <laughs> or maybe how well it's not going. Uh, that's up for debate. Anyway, you, you get my point, though. We put our trust in all these different things, and the Samaritan woman is so focused on the physical, puts her trust in the physical things, and Jesus is trying to get her to realize what she actually needs. And it's not that we don't have physical needs. We do. Or we have to wake up, we have to eat, we have to drink, we have to do some other business, and we sleep. Right? We have physical needs. We have to repeat that cycle every day. And that's the thing. We have to repeat that every single day until we die. It's temporary. Look at verse 14 again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If people would just know the person who says, give me a drink, they would ask him for a drink of water, a drink of water that wells up to eternal life. See, the water we drink only lasts in as far as we have breath in our lungs. But the spirit that we can receive from him leads up to eternal life. I just realized I skipped over something. John chapter 10. Actually, John chapter 7. Sometimes I already, I immediately connect these things in my mind, so I accidentally skip over something. So John chapter 7. Verse 37 through 39, you want to see why the Spirit is that living water? 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that's living water. The Spirit that enters you and dwells in you, the Spirit that sanctifies you, is that living water that wells up to eternal life. One does not have eternal life without the Spirit. Sanctification got to take place. Spirit work, the Spirit's work in your life has got to take place. The Christian life is not just saying, Lord, I believe in you, and that's it. That's, that's not the life. It's having the Spirit dwell in you. And this is not a distant promise. John chapter 3, verse 36, again, whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, has eternal life. Look at what the woman says in response to Jesus in verse 15 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, to be fair, she asked for a drink, right? But she's still focused on the physical. She thinks that Jesus' uh, water, this living water, she thinks it's going to solve her physical thirst. She thinks it's going to solve her, her work, the labor that she has to do to go draw water. Man, don't we do that to Jesus sometimes? We look at him, we look at what he offers us, and we think, okay, Jesus, good. Can, can you meet my physical needs? Can you meet my physical desires? By doing that, we limit him. Because what he offers is so much more than physical. I praise be to God if we have our physical needs met, but let us not be deceived. Our physical needs do not compare to our spiritual needs, and so many people do not see this. It takes her a little while to see it. She will eventually. It might take us a while. But I hope you ask him for a drink, and you can as we stand and sing.